I think we can all agree being a leader is really hard. Being a great leader sometimes feels near impossible. So how do you get better at it? Well, today we've brought in the co-author of the best-selling book, Leadership, Myth, and Reality, Jeff Eggers, who's going to walk us through the discipline of becoming a great leader here on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Will. Todd Will. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I am just beyond myself excited to have had this conversation with Jeff today. He is a phenomenal person, great leader in his own right, uh, Navy SEAL. He was with uh, this, an advisor for the Joint Chiefs. He worked for the White House. He's now with McChrystal Group, leading their leadership practice. He's a phenomenal individual, and he just doesn't stop there. He wrote, co-authored with General Stanley McChrystal, the best-selling book, Leadership, Myth, and Reality. And instead of giving a top 10 list, uh, five things you should do to be a great leader, they break down the disciplines, the skills, the qualities of leadership, and look at it across a variety of different leaders throughout time. The book's fantastic. I've read, read it twice, back to back. I can't get enough of it, and was excited to have this conversation with Jeff. So with that, sit back, take a listen, and let's talk to Jeff about leadership and the disciplines of it on the podcast. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I am very excited to have Jeff Eggers on today. He's got an outstanding new book. I'm going to let him introduce it here in a second. But uh, Jeff is just a fantastic conversationalist. The guy knows more about this topic than, well, just about anybody. Um, so let's just take it away. Jeff, who are you and why are you on the podcast? Hey, Todd. Uh, great to be with you. And uh, so, yes, just, just finished <laughs> writing a book. But um, re relatedly, and, and the book's not entirely an accident, I run a leadership institute here in, in the D.C. area. Um, called the McChrystal Group Leadership Institute. So I, I have the good fortune of having a job where I study and think about this thing we call leadership um, every day. I mean, that's that's essentially what my job is. And, you know, so consistent with that, Stan McChrystal and I, along with a third co-author, Jay Mangone, you know, about two years ago, sat down and decided that we had all bought into what, what was really a mythology of leadership. In other words, that there was this gap between how we typically talk about leadership and how we experience it. And we had felt this personally as, as we all happen to be military veterans. So as former practitioners in the military as leaders and having been through a number of different types of formal leadership training that it wasn't quite working out as we had been led to believe. And then as, you know, students of history and people who like to read about historical leaders, we had the same reaction reading about their lives. And that gave rise to the idea of this book that would, that would try to look critically at this gap uh, or this, this, this mythology and try to come up with a better framing or what we ended up with, a new paradigm for thinking about leadership. So the, the book is called Leaders, Myth and Reality, correct? Right. And, and it's out now. Uh, in fact, it's doing very well. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's, it's doing surprisingly well. We hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. We're, at, we're now at um, eight weeks since the, the book came out. But I think after uh, three weeks or so, we hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And we're quite pleased with, with the reception, number of, of good 
good reviews. But really, more than anything, what we want to do is we want to invite and encourage and facilitate a conversation, really, about leadership. Um, there, there's, in our minds, there's a number of people who have different kinds of frustrating experiences with leadership, whether it's, it's in an organizational or work context or whether it's in a political context or otherwise. And a lot of people are thinking about it. A lot of people are talking about it. And so one of the things we really want to do is just elevate this kind of national dialogue on what do we mean by leadership and, and what do we expect out of it and so forth. Well, and, and this is, this is a great segue to start talking about the, the, the precepts of the book and, and sort of what you've crafted and what you put out there. So, you know, I've had the benefit of, of reading it and enjoying it. And it's the, it's the reason why I invited you on and wanted to spend some time talking with you about this. Um, Pretty crowded space in terms of books on leadership. There's a new one sort of coming out almost daily now. Um, I know that this is a really fantastic book, but, you know, why don't you give me a sense of, and our listeners a sense of what's different about this and what was the approach that you guys took that made this a unique voice in the space? It is a crowded genre, that's for sure. And in in fact, I spent probably 10 years talking to publishers and agents about different ways to to reapproach the idea of writing and thinking about leadership. And because it's such a crowded, saturated genre of books, it's really hard to have something new to say. Because as you said, there's there's a book every day that that promises to kind of uncover the secret of leadership. And one of the things that that we wanted to do was to avoid falling into that trap but also to have something new and interesting and different to say. So we, we, we went about that in a couple different ways. Some of them were obvious at the beginning of the project. Um, some of them didn't emerge until we finished. Probably the most fundamental way in which the book's a little bit different is, one is we, we modeled it after this, this very old uh, book. Uh, it's not really a book. It's a, it's a collection of writings by the Greek classicist Plutarch. Um, who wrote a series of biographical profiles of paired Greeks and Romans. And it's called, you know, uh, Plutarch's Parallel Lives. And it's a a pretty prominent work in both establishing what we now know to be the modern art of biography, biography, but as well in leadership. And it was kind of a big deal until about a century ago when it it stopped being read and it, it fell out of favor. But for a while it was... You know, the number two best-selling thing publication after the Bible. Anyway, so we we decided to ask ourselves the question: like, who would Plutarch write about today? Because he's got more choices, right? You don't need to just write about <laughs> Greeks and Romans. You you've got this huge, you know, um, uh, <laughs> centuries and centuries of right. leaders to go uh, take a look at. Who would Plutarch write about today? And that was that was a question we borrowed from. A, a David Brooks uh, commencement speech. And, and so we, we went after that question and we decided to write kind of a modern remake of Plutarch's lives by pairing historical leaders and then try to compare them and, and then take a step back. And so that's what we did. We, we paired slightly more modern um, leaders into these, these six archetypes or or genres of types of leaders, and then wrote these profiles and then stepped back from it and said, based off our experience, based off of these profiles, what, what do we see? And so in some ways the book is 
different in its structure. And it's also different in the fact that it's partly biographical in nature, but it's also saying something new and different about leadership in terms of trying to kind of almost redefine what we mean by leadership in the first instance. Well, what I thought was so telling, so interesting about it was exactly as you described, you're, you're sort of pairing these, these two dynamic leaders and you will get into some of the who those are and the, the uh, archetypes that you've created. But, you know, the, you, you pair these leaders um, and you talk about them almost as sort of mini biographies and then you compare and contrast strengths, differences, weaknesses, um, their approach, how they approach sort of this common um, realm, these common genres. And then you get this, um, this really interesting output of having looked at these two leaders, you get an understanding of what leaders in general are like around these different archetypes. And so it was a, I found it to be a very interesting read because you could dive in on someone like a Walt Disney or a Coco Chanel and start to understand who they are, what they were. In some ways, uh, you know, you think you know who they are and you find out some different um, perspectives on them from the book, which I found enthralling as well. But just a great point of view of being able to see this sort of compare and contrast of these two great types and then what made them unique. And then we'll get to the outputs here in a second. But I, I just, I love the approach. It was so... Um, uh, a great read and just an eye-opening experience. Yeah, thanks. We we had a lot of fun writing it. You know, we we couldn't, of course, try to recreate or rewrite a, a full biography of each one of these people because you know we only had four hundred or so pages to to talk about <laughs> these thirteen people. Uh, but we what we did try to do is we tried to find the most interesting aspects of these people lives, most of whom are household names, right? So whether it's Albert Einstein or Coco Chanel, uh, Margaret Thatcher, to try to find some somewhat representative stories of their lives that would, would surprise people and force people to, to understand that there was more nuance, more complexity and more color to these people than we generally um, give them you know, credit for having or are somewhat surprising. So just to, just to give you one example, uh, you mentioned Coco Chanel and Walt Disney. And in, in those two stories, I mean, Coco Chanel's now got more biographies about her than almost anybody. Uh, but what most of, most of our readers learn is, for instance, uh, where did the name of her you know, most famous and best-selling perfume, Chanel number five come from and what's what's the story behind that which isn't so much about leadership but it's 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 incredibly interesting more interesting is the fact that she was a pathological liar right and she she essentially was um her persona was it was hard to distinguish where kind of the the persona and the the real person began and ended because she was so good at kind of fabricating this narrative around who she should be as much as who she really was. And in many ways, what's even more surprising is Walt Disney was not that different. And they're both in the business of appealing to people because they're buying a certain either experience or a feeling or, or this. They're, they're in the, the business of selling something to customers. And 
for obvious reasons, they felt like they had to, to kind of change the, the narrative about how they were perceived. And so Walt Disney similarly was guilty of this habit of, of having both the public persona and then the real Walt Disney. And one of the more interesting quotes we came across, which made it into the book was, was him explaining to somebody at one point who was kind of surprised to meet him in the flesh and get to spend some time with him. He, he explained to the person, he said, look, you, you got to understand that, that there are things that I do that Walt Disney doesn't do. For instance, Walt Disney doesn't drink, but I drink and Walt <laughs> Disney doesn't smoke, but I smoke. Um, and so we tried to, to get at these perspectives on leadership through the most colorful aspects of these people's lives and, and some of the more surprising ways possible. And that way, make a book about leadership that has something very important to say, but also make it very fun and, and enjoyable to read at the same time. Well, and I, and I think the thing that, that I was really struck with as well is, so, you know, Walt Disney over time in particular has this sort of Uncle Walt mentality. And what you did with a lot of these leaders was um, you, you stripped down some of the myth. And again, it goes right into the title of the work. You stripped down some of the myth of these leaders and tried to look at a unflinching, realistic eye of who they were and, and what they stood for and got a little bit of behind the scenes. So it's, it's easy to look at Walt Disney as this, you know, very kind, uh, grandfatherly uncle Waltish figure, but realize that he had flaws and blind spots and, and took missteps and had behaviors that we might look as downright cruel at times um, even though he had this persona of this great visionary that brought us Mickey Mouse and, you know, uh, modern entertainment. And and you did that, you know, unflinchingly through all 13 of them and, and looked at them uh, realistically. And Robert E. Lee was another fascinating one to, you know, especially some of the conversation around him today and how it's been raised up and people are re revisiting um, his legacy. You, you tackled him as well as a, as a standalone. And that's that's a good that's a good point to I think um, dive into a little bit, particularly on Lee, is that leadership isn't what we think it is. And in many ways, the fact that there there was a a real person behind these uh, these various narratives and the, the the persona that they tried to to project was a good was a good launching pad into a discussion of what are the ways in which we either misperceive kind of on the generous end or just deceived about how leaders show up and how leadership is practiced in reality. And your point about Walt Disney being kind of from the public point of view, this, this uh, kind of very kind of um, charismatic uncle and then on the, on the, the backside being this, fairly, um, particularly later in his career, um, autocratic and, and caustic leader who got to the point of becoming so emotionally detached from his workforce that they, you know, uh, staged a massive walkout and protest. And, and that's not the Walt Disney that anybody remembers and certainly not the, the Disney that the company wants us to remember for obvious reasons. Yet it was very much a part of his leadership, um, experience and and it's and it's wonderfully ironic in that you had this this 
visionary genius. And there's no, there's no doubt that, that he was a visionary genius, able to conceive of ways to use technology that nobody had ever done. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget that we now associate him with amusement parks and so forth, but it's, it's easy to forget how revolutionary his, his, um, his breakthroughs in animated cartoon films was at the time in terms of bringing color and three-dimensionality and, um, and sound, uh, synchronized sound and so forth. And, and so he, there was no question that he was a creative genius. Um, but at the same time, while he could leverage that genius to create emotions and connect on an emotional level with his audiences, and that's really what he was best at, at the same time, he was actually quite distant and cold to the emotions of his workforce, right? And so when it came to his audience and his customers, he was, he was very much in tune. When it came to his people that actually did the work for him, he was pretty cold and ruthless and not terribly feeling. And that's hard to wrap your head around, right? That, that there were these two different identities going. And then with Robert E. Lee, it gets even more confounding just because it was only recently that we began to revisit and rethink the legacy of Robert E. Lee in a much more honest way. And it, it opens the question of, of one, why did it take so long? But two, how is it that someone who kind of failed in his leadership responsibility that was in, in losing the civil war, but more importantly, how is it that someone who made this kind of ethically um, uh, corrupt decision to uphold the institution of slavery or fight in the defense of the institution of slavery, how is it that somebody like that became so revered and so lionized over the ages and really for, for many, many decades as one of the greatest American leaders, certainly military leaders, we've ever had? Like, how did that happen? And why did we get that so wrong for so long? Well, and, and I think it opens up one of the things that, that I also found fascinating with this is when you started looking at leaders, you didn't just take the safe road. Um, and one of the things, you know, we had, we had discussed briefly before was this idea of, you know, you, you look at the zealots, you look at Robespierre and Zakawi and, and you take really unpopular people in, in, you know, modern history um, you you spend some time actually getting to the root cause of who they are, and and you have this sort of honest discussion going back to your idea of trying to open up dialogue about what makes these people zealots. So it's not all um, oh I don't know how do I say this? It's not all just playing nice with people like Disney and Coco Chanel, but you really get into even if you despise the methods, let's have a conversation about the tactics that these people used and, and how they were successful, even if you disagree with the, the philosophy behind them. Right. And that gets, that gets back to the mythology because we, we tend to hold up leaders who fail us, who disappoint us, who are ethically or morally corrupt. And yet they get held up all the same, even though when we go to business school or when we go to leadership training, where we spend a lot of time talking about the ethics of leadership, right? And yet we find a lot of leaders who are arguably pretty effective in their track record, who are pretty 
um, lacking in their, their moral fiber. Similarly, if we go through leadership training, we spend a lot of time talking about the virtue of humble leaders, and we should. One, because humble leaders are more enjoyable, and frankly, there's a lot of effectiveness in the practice of humility and leadership, and that's, that's fairly well established. And yet, when we look across the, the historic canon of, of leaders, we find that narcissists are overrepresented in senior leader positions. And so it raises this question, if that's true, why is it that we promote the, this virtue of humility if we find so many senior leaders who are actually quite effective to be lacking in humility? And of course, Steve Jobs, who we decided not to, to profile, is, is a classic case study of that particular dilemma. But there's, there's many situations like that, which we did, as you said, we didn't want to shy away from that. We didn't want to turn a blind eye to the fact that leadership has a bit of a dark side to it and an enigmatic dark side. And, you know, not that, that we were going to put Adolf Hitler in the book either, but we spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean for a leader to be either revered or separately to be effective. And it's pretty clear where Hitler's legacy sits today but would we still allow him to be characterized as having been an effective leader, right, for most of his, his life and career? And I think the answer is yes, and yet he was still um, kind of the, the dark underbelly of leaders. And so we wanted to explore that side of it and not shy away. And that's, as you pointed out, that's where we ended up with people like Abu Musab Zarqawi, who was the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And that was a, there was a little bit of a personal connection to him if only because um, we spent in our military careers some portion of our life um, targeting and, and chasing him around Iraq. Um, and so we got to know him at that level. And he was nonetheless someone who we could almost admire because he was an effective leader in his ability to create the movement that became Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And it was an interesting story to us that someone whose methods are so kind of easily despised could still be so effective in um, their their achievements and their outcomes. And so we, we didn't we didn't want to shy away from that. And we, we included, of course, not Abu Musab Zarqawi, but as you mentioned, Maximilian Robespierre, um, who was responsible for most of the the killing of the French Revolution. Uh, we also included Boss Tweet, the famous New York Tammany Hall uh, politician who essentially created the, the art of political corruption, or at least perfected it in that day and age, um, and yet who won an election after he was convicted as a criminal <laughs> for being corrupt, right? He still, he still had enough popular support, or at least momentum to be to win an election so how does that kind of stuff happen how do we how do we say yes to leaders of, of dubious moral fiber if leadership is supposed to be this thing that's that's closely related to ethics well and, and i think it also gets to one of the things that i i enjoyed which was as you come to the end of the book you don't give a conclusion that says 
do these five things. Or if you take one thing from each of these leaders and make it kind of a Chinese menu, you could be successful. That you, you really discuss this idea of context. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me is I'll, I'll use sort of, you know, Luther as an example. Um, Luther could have done the 95 theses and done that at any time, but it was the context of the time. It was the political climate. It was the printing press. It was a whole host of things that led his actions at that one particular time to be effective as it did. And had it been 50 years earlier or had he come across 10 years later, the story, the the myth, the reality might have dramatically changed. And so you spend a lot of time talking about the context of it, that this isn't just a playbook, that you can't just copy one of these leaders to have success, that, that really you can learn lessons from them, but it all comes down contextually. And in, and in the end, we, we not only did we not try to create a, a checklist or a formula for leadership and say, hey, here are the five attributes or the three or whatever it is, we go a little bit further and we say any such attempt is, is misguided, right? And it is necessarily wrong because leadership is so contextual, right? It's intensely contextual. And what worked for a particular leader in a particular moment probably won't work for anybody else. I mean, are there some general things you can take away? Of course. But we're constantly lured in to this, this temptation of trying to find that checklist, that magical checklist. And, and it's, it's elusive only because the reality of leadership is, is that it's contextual. And it's contextual because it's, it's more of a system than of a person, right? Historians love to debate, and whether it's Martin Luther or anyone else of historical significance, was it the man, uh, or in some cases like Margaret Thatcher, the woman, or was it the moment, right? And, and that's, that's a classic debate in history, and it, it will probably never end. And it's probably no surprise that we come down on the side that, yes, leaders matter, and none of this is to diminish the significance and importance of leaders and the role they play and the reason we look to them and so forth. But so does the context and so does the system that surrounds the leader. And in fact, that system of followers and context and all those situational variables, in many ways, it matters more than the leader does, right? So that means chance plays a role and that means the particular time and place plays a role. And as you said, Martin Luther did what he did, not just because he had a particular idea and not just because he, in theory, uh, allegedly nailed it to a door of a church. And even that part of the, the story is disputed to some extent. Um, but it's because he threw a lit match in a dry forest. And the Martin Luther we came to know in his achievement as a reformer and as as a leader of a reformation had as much to do with the fact that he by by some ways that the the chance of luck through that lit match in a dry forest as it did anything else and that that we have to consider all of that when we think about if we're going to try and emulate some sort of leadership of a movement or a cause and we're going to try to learn from these other leaders of, of other causes. How much can we take and what are the right lessons to take? 
and and to not learn the wrong lessons, right? And not to fall into some trap that you could you could emulate a loser. In fact, we make the joke in the book that if you if you tried to emulate any of these people, you would just look silly, right? You would look like a crazy monk in Luther's case. You wouldn't launch a massive religious reformation like he did. Well, and so let's let's take this and actually start looking at some of the you know the modern headlines, right? I I, uh, I just finished Bad Blood, which is the story of Elizabeth Holmes and and Theranos and some of the um, uh, less than auspicious behaviors of of that brand, and we're seeing some of the you know the the almost daily releases of some of the behaviors of Facebook. You know, we saw Uber and a huge disruption in Uber, so we're we're seeing in particular around Silicon Valley, a lot of these leaders that are uh, employing maybe gray area, if not downright in the black ethical behaviors. And, and I'd love to hear your point of view in terms of your research on leadership and, and how it's applying to what's happening today. Yeah. And it's, it's the right question. And it's, and frankly, in some ways, the reason our book was um, more timely than we intended. I mean, in all honesty, when we started this book project, we did not anticipate that the book would become, um, would, would, would hit the, the shelves, so to speak, in a, at, at a time and in a moment when this, this was becoming one of the critical questions is, why do we see these irregularities and these peculiarities in leadership and, and what's going on with all of that. In, in those types of cases where you have leaders who, who don't live up to their own hype and yet they still command a following of people who are not, of course, um, uh, ignorant and, and, and are of some intelligence, like how does, how does that happen and where does that come from? And, and obviously that's, that's a complex issue of social science and so forth. But I think in large part it's, in, in its roots, our tendency to focus on individuals, right, as, as humans, because we can make sense of individual people, and we can attribute things, rightly or wrongly, to individual people more easily than we can to the reality of a nonlinear, complex web of factors that, frankly, eludes our, our ability to wrap our heads around, right? We can't, we can't really walk around the world and make sense of it in that way it's much easier to revert to the shorthand to say Elizabeth founded this great company and this is what they do, even if that doesn't really align with the reality, right? It, it, it's much easier to revert, revert to the shorthand. And it's also pretty tempting to exaggerate and even romanticize that, particularly when it goes to something that is going to deliver us more prosperity, deliver us solutions, right? There's, there's something great about humans that we want to believe. We're, we're hopeful as a species, right? We're, we're, we're forward-looking as a species, and we're, we're frankly easily duped um, by false promises and, and so forth because there's something in us that wants the future to be better and hopes that the future is better. And when it comes along in a, in a package that seems either credible enough or confident enough, um, zealous enough, whatever the case is, then you can command quite a following. And, and in fact, that's what the whole chapter Zealots of, of Maximilian Robespierre and, and Zarqawi is about is, you know, th- these were people that would not by any measure, you know, 
pass a, a job interview for any sort of, you know, traditional <laughs> corporate executive in today's days and age. So in some ways they're, they're, they're the exact opposite of the poster, you know, children of, of leadership. And yet they commanded these huge followings and very loyal. Um, and, and yet they were, they were extreme outliers in a psychological way. Right. And, and, and why do, why does that effect occur? Um, and, and in many ways we're still seeing it today in these, in these various ways. And so in some ways it's easy to kind of look back and say, wow, that that's really surprising or hard to believe, but in some ways this is still among us and we're still living with this type of, you know, phenomenon. Well, perfect. Well, Jeff, listen, we've got to wrap up here. Uh, what I want to do is just give another plug for the book. So it's Leaders, Myth and Reality by General Stanley McChrystal. Jeff Eggers, our guest here. And uh, say Jason's last name again. Oh, sorry, Mangone. So Stan McChrystal and Jay Mangone uh, are, are, are friends and co-authors. All three knew each other from uh, our military experience, but then worked with each other in a variety of different ways uh, after we left the military. Stan and Jay worked for a while together on a project called uh, Service Year Alliance, and it was this idea of how do we get more Americans involved in in bringing um, kind of their their civic responsibility to bear and serving um, their communities at some level, uh, at, at some part of their lives in a non-trivial way, right? Like how do we get more of America involved with, with carrying some of that burden of, of public service and civic responsibility? And then Stan and I uh, have been involved with this question of, of leadership and, and organizational performance, uh, both as a matter of research and curiosity, but also uh, in terms of what we do in training and, and advisory work for the, the private and public sectors. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic book. It's an amazing project. Uh, I loved the conversation around leadership, especially how this is more of a masterclass discussion than a, you know, quick ADD riddled checklist of do these five things and you'll be a great leader, which I, I think there's a lot of fatigue around because we all know that that shortcut doesn't work. Um, it may give you a tip or trick here or there, but really, if you want to be a leader, if you're looking to enhance your leadership skills, if you're looking to develop a philosophy in which you can uh, build leadership around and you want to understand it, this is an amazing book for it. Again, it's Leadership, Myth, and Reality. Strongly recommend it. Find it at your favorite bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and having this conversation. Um, so enthusiastic for the success of the book. You're right. You did come along at a time where this conversation is is very relevant. Um, people here, especially in, in Silicon Valley and in my backyard, are having this conversation on a daily basis. And so um, having something like this that opens up and, and enhances the conversation, gives people something to talk in or around, is um, is extremely timely. So thank you. And, and it's been great having you on the podcast today. Thank you, Todd. Great, great to chat with you. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast today. I loved having Jeff on. He's a phenomenal interview. He is so articulate, smart, well-read, and well-versed in the discipline of leadership. I loved his point of view and how they've taken this approach of looking at 13 leaders across time and not trying to boil it down into 
these five things will make you a great leader. Follow these top 10 and you'll be a phenomenal leader of people. Jeff really looks at it as the context, what's happening in the world around you so that even if you copy exactly to a T what another great leader has done, you still may fall flat on your face. The conditions need to be just right. And so leadership is elusive. It's hard, it's challenging, but his insights give you the disciplines, the keys to figure out leadership for yourself. If you'd like to learn more, by all means, I highly recommend checking out the book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite retailer. Or certainly follow Jeff at the McChrystal Group. And that's M-C-C-H-R-Y-S-T-A-L Group, McChrystalGroup.com. Jeff has his fingerprints all over the website. He's an easy person to find. And for us, we'd love to have you subscribe to the podcast. Go to your favorite podcast website, click that little subscribe button. We're going to give updates. We're on a nine-week run to talk about the disciplines of leadership and founder's DNA. And certainly you can subscribe to us on the website, and that's foundersplace.co, foundersplace.co, the place where exceptional founders grow. Thanks again for listening. Hope to talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.